G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Our special guest, who is an outstanding and outspoken advocate for freedom of speech in Australia. When he discusses Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act, he describes it as a blasphemy law by stealth. Sounds controversial? Well, Dr. Augusto Zimmerman is Senior Lecturer and former Associate Dean of Research and Director of Postgraduate Studies at the School of Law at Murdoch University. He's also a Commissioner with the Law Reform Commission of Western Australia. He's President of the Western Australian Legal Theory Association and Editor of the Western Australian Jurist Law Journal. Dr. Zimmerman is a prolific academic writer and the author of numerous articles and books, including one book which is very outstanding and worth drawing attention to in our introduction, his book called No Offence Intended, Why Section 18C is Wrong. Now, inviting you to be part of our conversation today, we will take calls as we go, as we get our conversation underway, but a special welcome back to 2020 to you, Dr. Augusto Zimmerman. Welcome along. Thank you very much, Neil. It's a great pleasure to be back. Augusto, even though my introduction sounded uh, quite complicated uh, for listeners, uh, I know that when we read your uh, bio, your uh, your uh, the th- sorts of things that you're involved in, uh, we just haven't done it justice because there's so much that you're involved in. Do you describe yourself as a constitutional lawyer? Is that the way that you describe yourself? Uh, well, I, I think it, to be described as a constitutional lawyer is not uh, a bad approach, but um, I also regard myself as a legal philosopher because um, I'm not so much into uh, discussing the black letter law, but also to analyzing the philosophical underpinnings of the existing laws that we have in this country. So when we talk about the law, it's not just about the letter of the law, but what the law means and your own speculation in some sense or prediction as to what would the outcome of the law be if it changed. Absolutely, because uh, there is no neutral law in the moral sense. Every law comes from a particular philosophical perspective. So if you think that uh, as Christians we should not be involved in politics, uh, but then we will have to expect that these laws will come from a different uh, philosophical point of view. Let's talk a little more about sort of constitutional things, because it's an interesting thing. The Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, met with Queen Elizabeth overnight, and as someone who once led Australia's Republican movement, uh, some were speculating that might have been an uncomfortable meeting with uh, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull meeting with Queen Elizabeth. When it comes to issues to do with republicanism and uh, the idea of a constitutional monarchy, uh, if we're talking about constitutional law, what does, uh, what does it mean that the Prime Minister met with the Queen overnight? And do you have some reflection on uh, some of the outcomes of that? Well, I think it's... Uh it's important for him to be respectful. There is no uh, discussion that uh, he is a Republican and he doesn't necessarily support the constitutional 
arrangements uh, that we have in place at this moment. The point with the Republic is that uh, we would probably have to uh, even rewrite the Constitution, because the Constitution is based on a particular model. And um, if we decided to go for a Republican uh, model, that would imply in a redraft of the document. And that's when I feel a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of a republic. Uh, it's just because uh, perhaps we are further undermining an important uh, link to our Christian foundations. It's very important to understand that the ritual of coronation uh, contains an important uh, symbolic meaning. Uh, the queen, at least uh, in theory, is uh, obliged to rule the country according to Christian values. And uh, the same applies to the Governor General, since he represents the Queen here in Australia. So I think it's a, a, a dangerous position to try to redraft the document, because we don't know the outcome, what it would, would be. We have no idea of the outcome. I saw the Prime Minister in an interview after his meeting with the Queen, uh, and he said that Australians... Uh, tend to be Elizabethan rather than uh, constitutional monarchists. He said uh, even people who are on the Republican side tend to be Elizabethan. Uh, the other, the idea, of course, that uh, everybody loves Queen Elizabeth, uh, mm. but she won't last forever, and Prince Charles will uh, one day perhaps uh, ascend to the monarchy. Uh, that's when a real Republican debate will likely take on new life. I think what's very important is to establish a system of checks and balances whereby uh, power will not be excessive. So, for instance, when it comes to the governor general, he needs to be apolitical, meaning that he cannot take uh, political sides. And, um, uh, Elizabeth, as a queen, has the moral obligation to transcend the realm of uh, partisan politics. If we decided to go for a republic, we don't know exactly the the kind of behavior the president would, would, would have. Probably he would have to be elected or appointed by the parliament. That would indicate that he would uh, not necessarily be entirely neutral. I think what we need to do is to establish a system of checks and balances whereby the power of the government can be limited. And that's because of a Christian perspective that uh, power corrupts, as, in, as Lord Acton mentioned in the past, power corrupts absolutely interesting terminology you use there and in light of the queen because when you talk about someone in a position of the queen transcending partisan politics in other words she's above the politics whether you are conservative or progressive as your political alignment may be but isn't that also a uh, an illustration of what it is to know God, to know uh, the law of God. Isn't God's law transcendent above partisan politics? Absolutely. And one of the reasons that's why I always say, and I'm about to write a book on the subject, that uh, for the realization of the rule of law, we need to develop what I call a higher law jurisprudence. Even if you can have people who do not necessarily believe in the existence of God, I think it would be good for them to hope that everybody else or most of the population would have or hold such belief. And that's because the best protection we have against government uh, uh, arbitrariness and tyranny is the belief that the, uh, ultimately the higher law 
is not enacted by the state, but it's actually God-given. We are endowed by God with inalienable rights. And that, if that is so, it's the, the state is forbidden to remove or take away these rights because they are not given by government. Uh, according to the classical liberal tradition, and you think about the likes of John Locke, he would say that the purpose of government is to uphold the higher law. He used to call this natural law, but he made the point very clear that this is God-given and not state-oriented. And if that is so, our fundamental rights are not provided by government, but it's actually given directly by our Creator. And that's interesting because if one of our political leaders says, I'm atheist or even agnostic, and they deny God, aren't they denying that there is a transcendent law that is above partisan politics? And even though they'd be trying to defend some sort of law, they wouldn't have a a ground to stand on because without acknowledging God, uh, in some ways, our law is pretty meaningless and it's just up to uh, who can come across uh, uh, with the best uh, the best well-marketed policies. Isn't that the case? Absolutely. And then we don't have the rule of law anymore. What you will have in this case is what I regard as being the rule by law. It's that when the state de- dictates the ultimate meaning of um, legality in a society. So the problem with this kind of approach is that in, very, in, in many ways, uh, might will make right. Uh, it's a social Darwinian idea that If I have the power, I can impose my will and baptize what I want as somehow a fundamental right. And that is not our tradition. If you think about the drafters of the American Declaration of Independence, they made it very clear that they hold these truths to be self-evident because they are truths provided not by themselves, but by but by God himself. So if you remove this idea, then we are going to think about subjectivism and the fact that everybody can actually think that they can um, impose their will and as a result create rights out of their own willingness. And that's not a very solid foundation, and it creates moral relativity uh, or relativism and certainly confusion to the legal system. And one of the things we need in the rule of law is certainly certainly certainty, what, what we call legal certainty. And the best way to have legal certainty is to believe that the law is transcendental, ultimately speaking. So we need to have far more than just positive law, but you have to have a set of moral standards by which laws can be measured. Let me just tease this out a little more with you, Augusto, because when we've got this transcendent law and, uh, as you say, uh, self, uh, you know, these things are... uh, uh, are obvious uh, that there is a law that is above governments. But if you ignore the God-given law, uh, then you've got this idea, as as you say, that might is right. Uh, so if there is not uh, the law of God, then you're actually, you know, if we're not under a rule of law, you're under the rule by law. And then you've got people competing then to put the other down so that their law might be seen to be the law that is most important above their competitors. Ultimately, doesn't that, in other contexts that you might be able to observe around the world and through history, doesn't that lead to internal conflict? Doesn't that lead to civil war? Absolutely. Well, at the same time, we have to take into account that the Bible views um, human freedom as as a privilege. It's given by God. 
And um, one important aspect of this freedom is this uh, ability that we have to express ideas freely. Because in many ways, God is a God of freedom. It's very clear in the Bible. And, but because we live in a fallen world, then we have the problem of sin. So we need freedom of speech to prevent the abuse of power, not the other way around. So our political leaders uh, need to be chosen by the people who live in a democracy. And if you have a democracy, freedom of speech is a fundamental element to protect democracy itself. But Christianity, when they talk about um, recognizing this higher law, that's the root of an individual rights and freedoms in the West, because God is a God of liberty. And the recognition by law of this value that each being, human being possesses, that is, to be able to make choices, is a fundamental characteristic of us as created in the image and likeness of God. So, and it's even wrong to believe that people enjoyed these fundamental rights prior to Christianity. And if you read, for instance, Fustel de Colanges, who was a leading French sociologist, she, she, he, better say, he was a man in the 19th century, put very clearly that the ancients had not even an idea of what such rights would be because they didn't have the concept of individual rights. That was established by Christianity. And the first example of real limited government in modern times, or better saying medieval times perhaps, is in 390 when a bishop, Bishop Ambrose, forced the emperor of uh, Rome, his name is Theo, was Theodosius, to repent for a massacre of 7,000 people. And that indicates that even the Roman emperor would be placed under the rule of law. So I'm not talking about here a totalitarian government, an Islamic view of uh, God intervening. But I'm talking about a God that gave us rights and freedoms. And the whole purpose of the government is to protect these rights and freedoms. Otherwise, according to St. Augustine, it becomes just a criminal gang. So the only reason as why government obtains legitimacy is to protect people, punishing the wicked and doing good to those who obey the law and do the right thing. Augusto, of recent times you've been an outstanding and outspoken critic of the Prime Minister. Uh, a couple of months ago, the Australian Financial Review published an assessment that you made of the Prime Minister, and one of the things that you were critical of him about uh, was that he hasn't stood up to, uh, to uh, in fact, ensure the freedoms uh, that we need in Australia, the idea of freedom of speech. And I think this comes back to, doesn't it, uh, Section 18C in the Racial Discrimination Act. What was your criticism of the Prime Minister? Well, it, as a matter of fact, I think he's running from um, a perspective that is not traditionally up, upheld by the party, uh, the Liberal Party. Uh, he talks in uh, this recent speech about uh, freedom, that the Liberal Party is a party of freedom, and that makes him not a conservative. I don't think he actually understands the conservative tradition in the West, because the conservative tradition in the West is connected with a classical liberal tradition of protecting individual rights and freedoms and to place government under the law. So when we talk about conservative tradition in Australia, we are talking about a particular classical liberal perspective 
of the role of the state. And that's probably not well understood by Malcolm Turnbull. Another problem that I see is that I was a candidate for the presidency of the Human Rights Commission. And perhaps for being a Christian, I might even have been disqualified for the, for the position. Um, I got criticisms because... Uh, I was uh, too outspoken about being a Christian, so perhaps to be a Christian, it's uh, something that could disqualify a person from applying for a job, uh, for instance, uh, as the president of the Australian Human Rights Commission. Another thing is that he promised that he would uh, repeal, not to repeal, but um, he promised that he favors freedom, but uh, the government is not taking the necessary action to repeal uh, laws in this country that uh, are very uh, problematic from the point of view of freedom of speech. For instance, Section 18C uh, of the um, Anti-Discrimination uh, Act. What we have there is the Attorney General promising that uh, it would be possible for us to be bigots. He actually made a statement when he introduced the bill, this Attorney General, that um, he would make sure that people have a right to be bigots. Look, I don't know if he is not being very wise or, he, or if he doesn't understand the law, because this law has nothing to do with bigotry. It has also to do, or far more to do, with people who are bigot themselves, bigot themselves, using the legislation to silence debate or any criticism of some, something that can be said or done. So basically the law is actually the other way around, can be hijacked by the real bigots and used as an instrument of silencing the debate just because someone happened to feel offended. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. You might like to join in our conversation today. Dr. Augusto Zimmerman, Senior Lecturer and former Associate Dean of Research and Director of Postgraduate Studies at the School of Law at Murdoch University. Also a Commissioner with the Law Reform Commission of Western Australia. Uh, we're talking through a whole lot of issues today. Freedom of speech is one of those issues. You might like to contribute 1-800-316-316. Augusto, you mentioned that... You were one of the contenders uh, for replacing the Human Rights Commissioner, Gillian Triggs. Now, there has been a appointment. Uh, Rosalind Croucher is the new president of the Human Rights Commission. Uh, do you have some thoughts on, uh, on how the new president might go as a replacement for Gillian Triggs? Well, uh, she's not as uh, problematic as uh, Julie Triggs. Julie Triggs um, was... Uh, uh, Probably, uh, if not endorsing, she was um, uh, chairing a commission that was causing a violation, I would say even, of the rights of those students at the QUT University. So she was um, not entirely aware of something that's very fundamental for our democracy. I call this uh, freedom of speech and implied, that is protected by the implied freedom of political communication. What uh, the government has done now is to appoint a uh, professor Croucher, and she's um, not uh, as uh, outspoken on her ideological approach. So she's uh, quite, uh, uh, I wouldn't say that she's an entirely bad appointment, but she's very silent on these issues. I mean, I was invited by uh, her commission to um, uh, approach a particular matter 
from a free speech perspective, I was invited to uh, provide my opinion. And what I have noticed is that um, it seems that, that uh, Professor Croucher is very um, concerned about um, uh, the issue, but I don't think she's able to openly manifest it. I think she's quite uh, uh, keen on... Um, pretend at least, or perhaps to, that is what she really is, to be very mild and moderate on these issues, not really, really wanting to uh, cause any kind of trouble, any kind of disruption. And I think it's very valid. I mean, she is a moderate. She is not going to be um, aggressively at, uh, at attacking this agenda, which is uh, perhaps uh, productive. But I think that... Um, uh, this free speech problem that we have in Australia is not going to be addressed by her at all. I think she's probably going to uh, ignore the issue in many ways. Okay, well, uh, Rosalind Croucher, the new president of the Human Rights Commission, you think that she will probably not rock the boat when it comes to Section 18C. In fact, the Institute of Public Affairs, which advocates for economic and political freedom, has called the choice of Professor Croucher a Triggs Light appointment. So uh, is that a, a fair enough sort of assessment, a Triggs Light appointment or someone who won't rock the boat? I, I think it, it, it's, a, it's a, a bold statement, but certainly I don't think she's going to rock the boat. There is no doubt that she wants to be seen as, uh, you know, not causing any kind of trouble. That's her approach. There's always been so. So she's not the kind of person who is in the cutting edge of any issue whatsoever. And when I presented my paper on free speech at her commission, my paper was not even published because it was regarded as too controversial. And I had other people who had, had faced the same problem uh, by presenting papers that are clearly saying that we have to address this important issue. And um, so that has been censored. So I don't think she will be able to do what she needs. I think... Um, Probably she's going to be uh, running a very neutral and mild and, and not very effective law reform, uh, sorry, law, um, uh, human rights commission, better say, sorry. Augusto, if you feel censored, if you feel as though that uh, your paper was rejected on the grounds that it was going to be too controversial, uh, hit us with the most controversial things that you were suggesting. Now, we're talking about Section 18C uh, in the Racial Discrimination Act. It is that particular very controversial uh, section of the Act uh, which talks about uh, whether people have uh, a right to offend other people. You might like to explain, uh, in a nutshell, uh, what that Section 18C means and what your primary criticism is of that particular section and why it needs to be changed. Well, 18C is part of a series of laws that have been introduced in this country, restricting freedom of speech in various ways. Uh, what happened here is that... Um, it is about uh, rules restricting speech that put, can potentially cause offense. And because someone else might have something to say and another person is um, being offended. This is a remarkably vague and it's very highly emotive approach. Um, basically, all that is needed is the notion of emotional distaste. So if a person says something that can be even moderate and mild, 
the person who is uh, the recipient of the address can actually feel offended. So what we have, in my opinion, is the construction of a crime of conscience, whereby an opinion that is considered to be uh, distasteful can be uh, brought to the attention of the courts. The point is that this threshold is very, very, very low, so that even if you actually are able to construct your argument in a very rational way, a person who perhaps is not as reasonable as yourself might feel offended by what you have stated and use the, the law uh, to um, sue you or to go after you on the grounds of offendedness. And this is uh, against our tradition of the common law that says that laws should be objective and you should actually have the certainty about your actions not being addressed or by the law or considered to be illegal. So we're actually placing a level of subject subjectivity that's extremely dangerous for the preservation of the rule of law in Australia. So the threshold is very low, as you say, and uh, as I understand it, judges instructed to approach uh, the conduct in question not by community standards, which in themselves are moving, aren't they, uh, but by the standards of the alleged victim or mm. the group uh, that the victim is a part of. All mm. of these standards, they're all very relative. They change all the time, don't they? Absolutely, and uh, you have to consider that this idea of group rights can actually be a major impediment for the protection of human rights for all. Because when you talk about group rights, you have to take into account the perspective, the broader perspective of human rights. Because they are not an indivisible unit. You have within the categories of uh, human rights what we could regard as the real human rights, in my opinion, that are the rights of the human being. Then what, as a result perhaps of this uh, departure from our Christian foundations, now we have the idea that groups have also rights. But within these groups, you have their own hierarchies, for instance. There are some groups that perhaps will use this perspective of group rights to actually uh, violate the rights of the individuals uh, uh, integrated or within these, these uh, different groups. What I say is that um, cultural rights is not necessarily a protection for fundamental rights, especially if you are a person within the group wanting to develop your own individual perspective of reality. So, uh, the, the, as a matter of fact, this whole idea of group rights contain a very totalitarian perspective, whereby your right is no longer given as a result of you being a, a human being, but as a result of you having necessarily to belong to a particular group. Wow. One of the things that you very controversially say is that Section 18C is a blasphemy law by stealth. Uh, we haven't got a lot of time before the news, but uh, basically what do you mean when you say a blasphemy law by stealth or something that's waiting to happen? Well, uh, at this point it's about to happen. We, we do not have on religious grounds this uh, section, but of course Labour is promising and some may, members of the Labour Party to introduce uh, religious grounds as well. So if that, ha if that happens, then Section 80C will inevitably become a sort of blasphemy law by stealth, whereby if you raise a concern or criticism of a particular aspect of religion, these people who tend to be 
fanatics, they are going to use the legislation as an instrument of persecution and therefore establishing a sort of blasphemy by, by stealth inevitably. Uh, we will no doubt talk some more about that coming up after Vision National News. We're just a few seconds away from news now. Augusto, before we continue to talk some more about freedom of speech, let's talk about your writing because you have another book uh, that you're writing or have just completed writing now. Uh, tell us about uh, your uh, your thoughts on on uh, on your book on the common law and the uh, and and issues to do with that. Well, I uh I have noticed that there is a a niche that I believe to be quite important to address, that is the um, uh, history of the common law as developed from a Christian uh, tradition. So concepts such as natural law, natural right, natural justice, these all come from a particular way of thinking matters of law, justice and even morality. So what I have decided is to address these uh, incredibly rich, I would say, Christian heritage of the common law. And I decided to perhaps write the first ever book on the subject of the Christian foundations of the common law. And I'm addressing uh, three different jurisdictions mainly. One is England, of course, and then the United States, and there will be a special part of the book entirely dedicated to Australia. But um, as you know, the Christian foundations of the common law have been uh, in many ways, for quite a long time, neglected. So what the book tries to do is to correct this omission. I think we need to analyze the philosophical foundations of the law in England, Australia, and America. So the book will reveal these Christian principles and explain how the common law system or tradition has been entirely founded and based on Christian principles. That's what I intend to do with this book. I haven't decided on a publishing house yet because I was not wanting to make this uh, uh, an affordable book to the general public to obtain a copy. So perhaps I'm not going for these expensive publishing houses. I'm going to try to find a more popular one so that everybody will have access to this book that I believe to be quite important. Well, there might be a note there for listeners who have connections uh, with publishing companies, a uh, an insightful book on the common law, on Western society. And is there a specific title you have for your book yet, Augusto, or is the title well, I... still, uh, still uh, in, uh, in formation? Well, it's, it's still information, but I have a, a title in my mind that perhaps can be the, the, the final one. It's called Under God and Law, and that is coming from Lord Bracton. In the 13th century, Henry de Bracton wrote the first treatise on the common law. It's called The Legitimus and Constitutinus Anglia. And he mentions that um, the king is, is under the law and God, because the law makes him king. And uh, that was a very important remark. He gives even an example of Jesus, uh, saying that Jesus was willing to be uh, upholding the law, and that's why we get saved, because Jesus came and he upheld the law. And what um, uh, Bracton says in the 13th century, the, year, the, the same century of the Magna Carta, is that a lower king has to do the same. So one of the reasons as to why we have rule of law in the West is because of this culture of legality that was brought about as a result of a Christian faith. And Lord Cook, Sir Edward Cook, appealed to this approach, this tradition in England, to say that even the king needs to be under the law. When James I claimed 
that as the king of England and James VI of Scotland, James believed that he would be the expression of the law, that he would personify the law himself. Cook reminded him that that was not so, because the king is under God and the law, and because the law makes him king. So that's the title of my book, Under God and the Law, The Christian Foundations of the Common Law. Uh, Perhaps you could join the dots for us here, because not everybody who will be listening in has an understanding of the law, because when we have statutory law, that's the law that's legislated in our parliaments. But the common law is based on uh, the idea of uh, precedence, uh, those mm-hmm. things that have been already established in earlier cases that uh, that judges and magistrates might rely upon. Mm-hmm. Let's get the connection between uh, those precedents, and these go back a long time, uh, and they can go back centuries, can't they? Uh, but absolutely. So, how do we draw the you know, join the dots, uh, draw the line, uh, line up what happens with our common law that goes right back to what you're describing, back to the Magna Carta, and back mm-hmm. to the Bible, even back to the Ten Commandments. How do you how do you join the dots and say, well, this is the way Western society works uh, with our law, Augusto? Well, the, the the Magna Carta was an attempt by um, the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, Stephen Langton, to create a higher law jurisprudence in England. So the Magna Carta would uphold uh, biblical values and would be forced upon the king. So the king would have then to make a commitment to uphold certain values and principles as derived from the Magna Carta. One was religious freedom. The other was the idea of uh, uh, property rights and the idea of due process of law. So all these things that we now uh, consider to be fundamental rights of the individual were reminded um, basically by the Magna Carta. The king was told that he has the uh, obligation to uphold these uh, uh, moral standards. Uh, Then we have uh, the development of precedent. The common law system uh, is very much based on the idea that judges uphold what other judges have decided. But this is uh, sometimes uh, misunderstood by some people. Uh, It's not to say that judges create the law, because um, the common law tradition says and believes in the law of reason. And the reason is something that is dictated to us as a result of the fact that we were created in the image of God, in the likeness of God. So we are able to make decisions that are based on truth. And the best way to actually know the truth is by consulting uh, divine revelation. And that is derived from the Bible. One of the reasons as to why England didn't have a constitution till the night, basically doesn't have even a written constitution to this very day, is that uh, up, up to the 19th century, uh, constitutional lawyers in England would state that England is based on a higher law, and the whole idea of the rule of law is that the government doesn't have to, doesn't possess the ultimate say on matters of legality, and that they have to uphold not only the positive law of the state but also biblical law. Uh, As to precedent, can I just say one thing about precedent that's very important? Precedent is not to be worshipped, because uh, Justice Frankfurter, uh, Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States in the early 20th century, he made the point that uh, it's better to be finally right than to be consistently wrong. 
So precedent is only valid if it's actually upholding the law properly. And if judges uh, realize that they're actually doing the wrong thing, they have to repeal precedent and have to reestablish the right order of things. So what is happening to the law today, and uh, reflecting on the common law, uh, with the rise of secularism, uh, the idea that truth somehow other becomes relative and that there are minority and loud minority groups that are uh, arguing for all sorts of different expressions of the law. Uh, How does that affect uh, the common law, which has got those foundations, as you say, that go back into, uh, you know, the Magna Carta and uh, back to the Ten Commandments, ultimately? Well, then we have the uh, erosion of the foundations. What we have in the present state of affairs is uh, moral relativism. So if the judges do not come from this particular perspective, then they will have the understanding that they are creators of the law. And we cease to have, in this case, the real rule of law tradition. What I have seen as a recent development is the idea that judges create the law which is actually not true at all, according to the common law uh, tradition. Judges are upholders of the law and discoverers of the law, but they are not necessarily to be inventing the will or recreating the will. They are not there to be uh, providing their own opinion in isolation. Judges have to always base their decisions on uh, legal grounds, and if they cannot find uh, existing Uh, positive law, they have to appeal to values and principles. Uh, If you don't have these values and principles, then it becomes might makes right, as I say. And then we have the uh, rise of what I call judicial activism. Judges can actually discover even rights. Think about what happened in the Obergefell case, the same-sex marriage decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. Judges had the guts there to say that they are creators of a fundamental right. In doing so, they're actually proclaiming to be God themselves, because if the right is fundamental, it cannot possibly be created by judges, unless they think that they are gods. And, of course, if you remove God from the equation, everyone becomes a little god, and they can actually create new rights basically out of nothing. And that's not possible, because our tradition says that fundamental rights, to be fundamental, have to be transcendental and universal, cannot be dictated or created by personal people, by individual judges. Augusto, let me take you back to our conversation about the Prime Minister and uh, his speech, uh, where he has described the Liberals as not conservative, because... Where we've got different positions, where you might have conservatives, and typically, I think what you're describing and what we would understand is that that conservative side of politics often upholds this idea of the common law and and uh, the law based in precedent and back to England and back to the Magna Carta and back to uh, the Ten Commandments. That's typically uh, where that sort of sits. The other side, of course, is socialist. When the Prime Minister describes Liberals as not conservative, uh, that's certainly stirred a a lot of uh, concern about where the Liberal Party might sit. Uh, Does that have any, uh, is there any further uh, uh, insight that you might have as to, uh, as to what might happen if the Prime Minister is detaching the Liberals from a conservative position? Well, in many ways, to be ironic, 
I think he is a conservative because uh, in many ways we have departed so much from our own uh, values and traditions that I became quite countercultural here in the university. Think about the students coming to me saying that I'm um, almost subversive because nobody thinks like us, especially in academia where it seems to be the case that pe people would probably agree with the prime minister on, on these uh, different issues. I mean, when you pretend to be um, uh, um, a progressive, you have to understand what you mean by the word progressive. That's actually a Marxist approach. And I'll tell you why, because it's based on the idea of uh, social evolution. And it was the idea of Marx that uh, he discovered the key that leads to the final achievement of a socialist utopia. And according to this perspective, if we re retard the march of history, we are to be blamed reactionary. So to be a reactionary, according to Marx's perspective, is, the, is to be opposing a dangerous socialist idea. Think about the 120 million people that died, who died as a result of communist regimes in the 20th century alone. And Marx would say that because he knows that the future one day will be wonderful, anybody who retards this uh, long march through the institutions, every, everyone is to be blamed a reactionary. So if you get a left-wing person calling you a reactionary, you have to understand that you are reacting against oppression, reacting against um, this communist uh, utopia that has led to so much bloodshed just in the history of the, of the 20th century. So it's not to be seen as an offense to be called a reaction by a person who upholds these values. We are taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Chris in Victoria. Hello, Chris. Welcome along. Uh, yeah, good morning, Neil and Augusta. Uh, yeah, good I morning. just think Chris Christians definitely have to engage and make sure laws are passed in accordance with God's law. Uh, otherwise, there'll be no blessing. And, you know, you know the world's in trouble when uh, Vladimir Putin is calling out all um, Western leaders that they're not protecting Christianity enough. And uh, you know why uh, Angela Merkel rolled her eyes at him, because he was probably telling her how evil Europe is. I mean, they've legalized pedophilia, bestiality, homosexual marriage. So... We definitely have to, uh, you know, put a stop to it. Your thoughts on, on what's happening with a seemingly changing uh, perspective that's coming from uh, Russia. Uh, your thoughts, Augusto? I think it's a very good comment. Uh, thank, thanks for your intervention here, because uh, uh, certainly we do not want to have uh, antago the, the West antagonizing with uh, Putin. We should actually work together. Uh, Putin, in many ways, is actually saying that he is willing to, for instance, protect the minorities in Syria, for instance, and especially Christian minorities. I mean, in many ways, what we have to do is to actually approach this guy. The West should say what we have that in common and how can we work together. Every time you have people saying that Trump is too connected with Putin, I always question why this is so bad. I think what we need is to actually see it with uh, Putin and see what we can actually do that can fight the good fight, especially against the Islamic problem, so this radical Islamist problem. So if we are both sitting together and discussing this matter in a rational and civilized fashion, then we can solve problems that are not being solved at this right moment. And certainly to advocate for Christian values and Western values is quite extraordinary, and in Russia mainly. 
And that's because perhaps they saw the consequences of an atheistic government. Because Russia was under a Soviet regime that highly suppressed Christian values. And that didn't work very well for them. They had oppression and tyranny for many, many decades. So what they do now is to actually remind the West that if we move on and if we uh, erode our Christian values, the future is not necessarily a bright one, and quite to the contrary, because we have in history the evidence that it doesn't work very properly. Think about what happened in East Europe and uh, in the Soviet Union. So uh, what, what Putin is saying is actually a very important uh, uh, thing for us to be aware of, that with the undermining of Christianity, then we might have a replacement with something that would be much worse than we have now. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. It's been an outstanding conversation this hour, one you might have had to listen a little more closely to, given that it's a level that most of us are not used to talking at. Dr. Augusto Zimmerman is our guest. He's a prolific academic writer, the author of numerous articles and books, including the book called No Offence Intended, Why Section 18C Is Wrong. Augusto, as we just draw some loose ends together, uh, when we describe you as an academic and you say yourself that not everybody in academia in law agrees with you there's an awful lot of relativism that's crept into uh, law academia what's your challenge to christian believers to apply themselves when it comes to a christian perspective and the law what are your thoughts well i think what we need to to see more is a commitment to to the truth and to be salt and light and the, the first thing you need to be aware of is that if you go perhaps to an university, you're going to be encountering different uh, philosophical perspectives. And you have to test things in the light of the gospel. So, for instance, if you see an opinion being formed, it's not necessary that um, it is based on the truth. Uh, for instance, like we have these uh, misleading perceptions sometimes that the law dictates morality. So what is, what is legal is necessarily moral. And that's not true at all. As I have just explained uh, previously, we have different perspectives for legality. And uh, every law is not neutral, and it comes from a philosophical approach. So we have to test the spirits, as the Bible says. We have actually to be careful not to be taken captive by false and deceptive philosophies. So the best way we go is to be aware of the fact that every idea has to be tested according to the Word of God. And of course, like I'm talking that, but I'm also saying that I believe that God is a God that gave us Ten Commandments. It is not so much. And then it came Jesus, reducing to two. And the law is fulfilled by love. And you have to love our neighbor as we love ourselves and love God above everything. Well, it's just been great getting your insights today. I'll point people to get a hold of your book called No Offense Intended, Why Section 18C is Wrong. Of course, uh, that's reference to Section 18C, the Racial Discrimination Act, and uh, the idea that uh, offense 
needs to be adjusted or changed in some way uh, in that particular uh, section of the law. Uh, the new book that you've written and will soon be published and available is a book about the history of the common law uh, from a biblical perspective. And no doubt there'll be listeners who will want to get a hold of that. And uh, we'll get you back on again uh, when your book is ready for release, when you've got some sort of official launch going and where people can get a hold of it, Augusto, because uh, uh, we'll want to talk some more about common law from a biblical perspective. But certainly want to uh, express my appreciation to you today for taking part on 2020. Uh, Dr. Augusto Zimmerman, Senior Lecturer, former Associate Dean of Research and Director of Post graduate studies at the School of Law at Murdoch University. He's also a commissioner with the Law Reform Commission of Western Australia, president of the Western Australian Legal Theory Association and editor of the West Australian Jurist Law Journal. Augusto, thanks so much for taking some time to share your insights and your heart with us today on 2020. Thank you very much, Tim. It was a great pleasure. God bless you and your listeners. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.